We are blessed to be a blessing, right? And so this season, especially when we think about Thanksgiving and the, the blessings we've been given, we should remember that we are conduits. We are blessed to be a blessing. And when that stops, when we suddenly think, well, we're blessed and that's good enough, then our spiritual life, uh, it gets precarious. Things can happen that aren't spiritually healthy because suddenly we move from a giving mindset to a getting mindset. The scary word for that is called greed. We're going to talk this morning about greed and its danger to us and how to overcome it. Now, in light of that, let me say three things to you. I realize that today is one of two days in which we have a special offering. I realize, second of all, that um, most folks don't like talking about money issues in church. And I realize, third of all, that we didn't plan it that way on purpose. <laughs> okay? I mean, we're in First Timothy 6, right, where um, Paul talks about this issue of greed. Will you take your Bibles and find that? First Timothy 6. And as we have looked into this book... I think it's very spiritually ironic that God has placed us in this text about greed and contentment on the same day that we have as a membership agreed to participate in our harvest offering. Now listen, that wasn't planned. We're not trying to backdoor you or ambush you. But I will tell you this. We're done being afraid to talk about money. Okay? Look around you in your society. It's greed that is a a real issue in our society. Consumerism, materialism, selfishness. And for the church to back away and say, you know, we're going to be afraid to talk about a prime problem is probably just a lack of courage more than anything. And so today, don't be nervous. Just take a deep breath and relax. I'm not going to try to get into your wallet. I am going to allow God to get into your heart. How's that? And as God works in our heart... And as we respond to Him, I think we'll become more generous and uh, much more knowledgeable about what He calls us to as a body of believers. Now, Paul lays out a warning about greed in several verses in chapter 6. You have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 6. He takes verses 3 all the way through verse 19. He talks substantially about the issue of greed and about the issue of of wanting more and of money and of contentment. Lots of topics are talked about in these verses. Let me see if I can summarize these verses for you in four words as we begin. I'll walk you through the verses, don't worry. But I want to give you a simple summary to help you kind of set, to help set a backdrop for these verses. Uh, this is the warning that Paul gives the church. It's, it's simple. It's this here. Greed leads to grief. Will you say it with me? Greed leads to grief. In fact, I want to be very bold with you this morning as your pastor and say to you this. If you refuse to arrest a heart that is consistently wanting more, if you refuse to deal with a greedy, selfish heart, you are signing on to a life of sorrow and hurt and pain and disappointment. They go hand in hand. That's the warning Paul gives us. And that may sound severe or somewhat somber, but he lays out some very strong warnings here to the church about a life of greed and selfishness. Now, with that warning flashing before us, with that warning in bright red letters, 
Paul kind of surrounds it with three what I call flashing lights. It's like, here's the warning, and it can be very somber, it can be very sobering. But he gives us three flashing lights to help us kind of see it well, to process it. And that's what the bulk of the text is about. So, with that in mind, let's do what flashing light number one is. In the first part of these verses, it's about verses 3 through about verse 10. I'll give you the, the flashing light first that helps us understand this warning better. It's this right here. Wanting more and wandering away are perilously conjoined. Watch this in the verses here. Let's understand what Paul is saying. He says in verse 3, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. In other words, he's going to describe now a false teacher. What they look like. What they act like. What they, what they think like. Look what he says. Verse 4, He is conceited. So underline the words, He is. Now stay with me. I'm going to walk you through a digression in Scripture that will help you. Don't lose me. Make sure your brains are clearly in turbo, drive, gear, whatever. He says He is conceited. And then Paul says he understands nothing. It's funny that, that false teachers think they know everything, but they actually understand absolutely nothing. Now watch this. He says he has, underline those words, so we see that he is something, but he has something as well. The Bible says here that he has an unhealthy interest. Interesting word there. Sound doctrine leads to health. If you notice in First Timothy several times, there's the word for sound doctrine, is the word for health. Here, false doctrine is unhealthy. It leads to an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. Now watch this next verse. That result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. In other words, here's this false teacher who thinks he knows everything, and the evidence of that is that he is in a constant divisive mode. He's always arguing. He's consistently debating. He has constant friction in all of his relationships. A sure sign that someone struggles with pride is when they always have to be right. And if you always have to be right, watch this. You're going to always be arguing. Because guess what? Watch the English here. Ain't nobody always right. <laughs> you with me on that? But if you're proud and conceited and you have to always be right, you're going to always be arguing because you, you can't afford to ever be wrong, at least in your own eyes. And so you have this constant friction, this, this ever-present tension. That's a sign of a false teacher. So he is proud. He has divisiveness all around him. Now watch this. It says, and here's why he has that, because he's been robbed of the truth. In other words, he, he at some point thought that godliness was a means to financial gain. Now watch this. Paul goes at this. He says he is something. He has something. In the last part of verse 5, it says he thinks something. Here's what he thinks. And, and now, now watch this. I'm going to try to show you this, this uh, scriptural digression of a false teacher. At some point, he was probably following the truth. He thought that godliness would be a means to financial gain. So in some way, either he was either pretending or he actually believed, but he seemed to be very close to the truth at some point, this false teacher. That seems to be the implication here. But as he saw Christianity as a way to get his what he wanted, financial gain or to get his way, he began to manipulate it, use it for his own good, and suddenly he was robbed of the truth, the text says. In other words, greed stole the truth from him. He let his heart get away. He let his heart wander. The, the truth was robbed from him. And suddenly, in his desire to want more, he found himself always divisive. Because that's what people do when they want their way. They fight for it. 
So we began to have major relational issues. Everything was a problem. Arguments, friction. And you know what that leads to is pride. Here is the digression of someone who never catches greed in the beginning. Watch this. They'll use even good things to get their way, like godliness. They'll abuse people around them to make sure they're always right. And they'll never admit they're wrong. So what do you got to do at the beginning? You've got to guard your heart from greed. You've got to watch over your heart with all diligence. Because the minute it starts being selfish and wanting more and greedy, you'll find that unprotected and unguarded men, it will use even the strongest beliefs and even your closest people to find and try to get its way. Say, Todd, that's awful. Yeah, that's what greed does. And I've discovered that this scripture here teaches something very plain and simple. Wanting more. Always having to to have more in, in your way. And wandering away. They are not just angry cousins. They're terrible twins. They are perilously conjoined. Instead of using Christianity or using godliness as a way to get what you want... Instead of using that as a way to disguise a heart that's actually black, he says in verse 6, we should be uh, contented. Look what he says in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness with greed is not great gain. That's what the false teachers think. I'll get my way. I'll get more things. Paul says, no, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Then verse 8, the hardest verse in the Bible. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So you don't like that verse any more than I do. You have your own blanks in there that you don't want to see. Like mine, say this. If we have food and clothing and an iPod, we'll be content with that. And you've got your own, don't you? If we have food and clothing and... But Paul says, listen, contentment is knowing that our needs are met and with that we are satisfied. Does anybody else struggle with that besides me? That's a tough verse. But Paul says that's really the gain of godliness. That we're satisfied with what we need. Not always what we want. That's one of the ways to protect our heart from, from wanting more. Which when you protect your heart from wanting more, you are actually protecting it from wandering away. See, some folks try to guard from the big fall. They watch all the, the crazy beliefs. Here's a better idea. Watch the little lusts. And if you'll protect your house, so to speak, the house of your life from the little foxes, when the big things come, it won't even be a problem because you have guarded yourself. You've protected your heart. He says we should be content. Verse 9, people, he just now reiterates some things he said. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I mean, Paul could not have been more clear about the connection between wanting more and wandering away. It's so, so obvious. If you're thinking I'm being rude or impolite in this, in this message, please hear my heart. I'm not, blame, I'm, not, I'm not trying to point people out and, and say that if you have a desire for... Um, that if you're wanting more, you're wanting away, that it's... Uh, I'm, I'm criticizing you. I'm trying to show you something. Scripture makes it very clear. Greed and a, and a detour from godliness go hand in hand. You've got to guard your heart against greed. Now, here's what this verse does not say. This verse does not say people who are rich. Why don't you look at it with me? 
doesn't say that, does it? Let me be very transparent with you for a few minutes. Sometimes wealthy people get picked on in churches. You know that? Because the the assumption is that they shouldn't be rich. They shouldn't have wealth. And usually it's by folks who don't have wealth. And so they're really jealous. Can I say to you that, that the real issue here is not the money. The real issue here is the heart. Are you listening to me? And I've known very rich people who were greedy, who wandered from the faith. And I've known very poor people who were greedy and wandered from the faith. The issue here is not the money. In fact, verse 10 confirms that. Look at verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then he says again, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I wonder sometimes if when we say, well, don't talk about money in church, if what we're really saying is, don't pinpoint my greedy heart. And so we try to make rich people feel uncomfortable. I want to say to you just as openly as I can, I'm not talking to anybody on a certain income level at all. I'm speaking to people who are brothers and sisters of mine in Christ. If your heart is greedy, you're in danger of wandering from godliness. Regardless of the level of your bank account, what you drive, or where you live. It's not about an amount of money. It's about a, it's about a temptation in the heart. Are you hearing me? Are you listening to me? And if you find yourself in a very tough financial situation, don't think you're exempt from greed. Don't think, well, Todd, I'm broke. I'm not greedy. That's, that's a lie from the devil. Greed is not a monetary amount. It's a lust in the heart. And whether you are wealthy or not wealthy is not the issue. It's your desire for more that God is trying to warn us against. And when that creeps in, regardless of our financial status, be careful because a wandering from the faith is right around the corner. So I say to you again, this first flashing light, wanting more and wandering away are perilously conjoined. It reminds me of the scene from Jungle Book. At the very end... These two characters are both in this palace where the monkeys are. Do you recall it? And they're, they finally found the gold. And somewhere in the movie, I think, um, when they find the gold, certain things happen. And so this palace with all the gold is starting out to self-destruct. The water's rising. And the point is that you can't get out with the stuff, you know. And one of the characters realizes, man, I'd better escape from my life. It's more important than the stuff. But the other character, he's got bags on him. He's stuffed them full of gold. He's got necklaces and chains and bracelets. And you can see him in the scene. He's like holding on and he's thinking, uh, the water's rising. The monkeys are hollering. He's like, what do I do? And as a viewer, you're thinking, well, it's a pretty easy answer, dude. Let go of the stuff. But he can't. He, he, greed has his grip on him. And the movie kind of ends with this guy drowning with all of his stuff. Like, what good is it now, right? And another guy's running out saving his life. That's kind of what greed does to us. When we want more, when that's our heart, it's, it's, it's the next of kin is always a wandering away and an eventual destruction. So church, I urge you to watch for greed in your heart. Have the personal courage to peel away the layers of your chest cavity and look into closets and corners that are dark. And ask yourself, am I just really using people and even godliness to get my way? Is the real case of my heart so that I can have what I want? 
Am I just being nice and considerate because it helps me in the end? I mean, that takes a lot of courage to look in the mirror and answer those questions. But until you do, these verses may always ring with the wonder like, okay, what's next for me? You've got to deal with the greed in your heart. Because it's conjoined, it's connected to wandering away. I hope no one here ever wanders away from their faith. How, Todd, we've read that. You deal with greed early on. There's another flashing light he mentions. The beginning in verse 11, he goes right to Timothy and talks about Timothy's heart. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, but you, O man of God, and he becomes very singular in his focus, doesn't he? In fact, do you see the word you there? I like the way Paul attacks in a, in a kind way. He goes right to Timothy. He says, Timothy, in light of all the false teachers going on, in light of the, the greed around you, here's what you must do. And he mentions five action verbs. And I tend to think all five of these are the opposite of what false teachers do, by the way. Look what he says. He says, flee from all this. What were false teachers doing? They were going after it, weren't they? Give me more. Give me more. Look what he says next. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That's not what false teachers do. They don't pursue the, the character traits of, of a true minister. They're actually conceited. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight. Now, I like that because Paul didn't say to Timothy, Timothy, roll over and play dead. Be a doormat. He told him to fight, but he told him to fight for what? Not fight for his way, but fight for the faith. See, false teachers fight, but they only fight because it benefits them. Real, true doctrinal teachers, they're not spiritual sissies, hallelujah. They'll fight, but it's not self-based. It's for God's kingdom. Are you with me? He says here in verse 12, take hold of eternal life. Don't take hold of other people's stuff. Which is what false teachers did. Verse 14, he says, keep this command. False teachers were actually wandering away from the command. All five of these things were commands that that Paul encouraged Timothy to do. Now, that's what we call, I want to use the phrase here, short-term living. Okay, Now, now don't hear that wrongly. But that's, that's the things that we're to do in the here and now. We've got to fight, pursue, and flee, and hold on, and keep. But sometimes that just plain gets hard. Can I get an amen on that? Are you with me? But sometimes living in the here and now against all the culture that's greedy and selfish, materialistic, you feel like sometimes you're just swimming upstream and you're like a minnow in the sharks? Now, I feel that way, so I'm like, man, this, am I the only person you know, thinking this way? Let me tell you how you live short term. You think long term. You look long term. I love the way in this passage, in these few verses, after Paul exhorts Timothy with five action verbs that are difficult, he says, listen, I charge you to keep this command, look at verse 14 now, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 15 is awesome. Which God will bring about in His own Time. Hey God, is it is it time yet? Could you make all the wrongs right? Could you make it even? Could you settle things today? Sometimes when that prayer isn't answered like we want, it's hard to keep fighting and pursuing and fleeing, isn't it? But remember this, that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will come back. He'll settle the score in God's own time. See, that's thinking long term. And that gives me motivation to live short term. I believe one of the reasons we don't have more believers pursuing, fleeing, fighting, taking hold and keeping is because they just see the grave and the grave only. Well, one day it's all going to be over. Man, what's the use? 
excuse me, life only begins at the grave. Can I say that again? Real life just begins at the grave. So I'd encourage you, hold on, church. Keep fighting. Keep pursuing. Don't give up. Real life is still ahead. Amen? That's what's coming. Now, you ask yourself, well, what is this real life you're talking about? I think it goes back to a part of this passage in about verse 12. When he encouraged Timothy to take hold of the eternal life. Do you see that? And then notice what he says here. He says, it was to what you were called to this life when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love the public aspect of those verses. We live in a society where, where people are putting more and more information out there for everyone to see, but we're becoming more and more private. You ever notice that? I mean, blogs these days that say things that I'm like, dude, you're putting that out on the internet, you know? And they're they're writing things that I would it's like, wow. And I'm not. I guess that's okay. But it's amazing how we become more and more open, and yet less and less connected. We we seem to share more information, but. We're afraid of the public in a lot of real ways. It's like we can be open behind closed doors. There's none of that being talked about here with Timothy. When Timothy was called by God to believe the gospel and trust, he said he made that confession in the presence of many witnesses. And one thing we don't do is embarrass you. But can I explain to you something? One of the reasons that we do ask for people to get baptized publicly, which is a step you take after you believe, one of the reasons that we often will ask you to raise your hand if today you've confessed Christ and believed Him. Or sometimes we'll even ask you to make your way to the front and see one of our elders, one of our staff, or deacons or something. It's not because we're trying to embarrass you. It's not because we think, well, we've, we've got to know who, you know all this. Uh, we've got to build our stats. None of that's in our heart. But there is a biblical element to public confession that seems to be proof positive that you really meant what you said. What did Jesus say? If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And so can I just encourage you, if perhaps even right now the Lord is working in your heart, and the Holy Spirit's drawing you to God, you're sensing this desire, this, this need to believe in Jesus. First of all, don't run from that and don't fear that. Be open and say, man, I'm sensing God's Spirit drawing me. I want to confess in front of all those who believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. That'd be very Biblical. That's the kind of life he's talking about. That's real life. And that kind of life, eternal life, begins when physical life is over. Amen? He talks about that next in this third flashing light. Let me show it to you. It begins in verse 17. And actually, I don't want to miss a verse back up. Let's back up a little bit. About verse 15, he talks about God and how he's the only blessed and only ruler of the, the King of kings, Lord of lords. Paul kind of breaks out into this, this moment of praise, doesn't he? In light of God, who's, who's got these times set, who's going to send his son back to get all the rest of the family. It's like when that happens, it'll all make sense. Keep fighting. And he breaks out on this time of praise. God who lives alone is he's he's immortal. He lives in unapproachable light to whom no one has ever seen and can see to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Wouldn't you love to be there in Paul's little sanctuary cell as he just kind of like exploded with praise to God? And when you live long term, you think long term, and you live in a short term fashion, you hold on. And that's happened sometimes in the middle of, of the worst situations. You find your life exploding in praise to God. Because you know what's coming. Amen. You know that real life's just around the corner, so to speak. 
So he says in verse 17, In light of that, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Interesting phrase there in light of what he said that false teachers actually were. What were false teachers? Conceited. He says, Timothy, encourage your wealthy people not to be arrogant. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain. And in my Bible, I've got a little parenthesis and it says, 2008 economy. Did you say that? No, it probably doesn't. That's just a little humor for you. How many of you know that this is an uncertain time? Sure you do. I mean, is this verse, could there be a more relevant time than now? I mean, who doesn't know that riches are uncertain? Just watch the markets. Look at folks who six months ago were sure they had a job. Now they're, they're, they're not even sure they, they're going to be employed next week. Employers who were sure they didn't lay anybody off are now looking at how to scale back. Having to lay people off that are their friends. I mean, some tough things have happened. Proof positive that... You know, wealth and the economy just does not have a stable place to stand. But God gives us stability, doesn't He? That's why it says here, put your hope in God. And then He describes God in a neat way. He says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that cool? Who's the real one that's rich? God is, amen? And He gives what He knows is best to us. And He then says, enjoy it. Isn't that awesome? Just enjoy it. He doesn't say compare it, which is what we like to do. Okay, God, thanks for this, but I wish I had what Joe had. I'm not driving what Susie has, and I'm not living over there where Frank lives. God doesn't say compare. God says, whatever I give you, just enjoy. In other words, unload the guilt and just enjoy the blessings. Because they're God's and He gives them to you. And then He says, after you enjoy, He wants us to then invest. Look at verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, see verse 19? Now watch this church. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Here's another reference to what's coming later. Do you see that? The real life that begins later. He says that, that you lay a good foundation for your, for your forever life. When you invest and do good and you're willing to share, when you take the blessings God has given you and you share them, man, you're laying bricks in heaven like crazy. That's the way to lay a good foundation for your next life. Now, he's not saying that that's how you get saved. Okay? He's not saying that, hey, you get a hold of the real life by sharing your stuff. But he is saying, now watch this very carefully, church. He is saying this. People who share and are generous and give, it is a way that they indicate they know what real life's really all about. Because they're not necessarily making it all, they're not protecting it in the here and now. They're investing it in people. And it's making a difference up there. You're laying up treasures in heaven, like Matthew 6 says. And you're building up rewards. I do believe the Bible teaches that for God's children, there is a time of rewards coming. And God will reward us based on our service. And the test of that service is our motives. And for all the service that's been done with pure motives, God will reward us. Look in 1 Corinthians for these passages that talk about it. And he says, you know what? When you serve others, when you share your stuff, when you are generous and you do good, you're laying up treasure 
from the right kind of motive, the right kind of heart, and God's going to reward you for that. Because you know what you're saying when you do that? Look at the last part of verse 19. You understand that's really the life that is truly life. That's how you take hold of that. How do you take hold of, of that life up there in the fullest degree? How do you enjoy the rewards that God has planned when that life happens? Is you invest now and you do good and you share. One of the ways to help you practice this is in this little card in your worship folder. Do you see it? In fact, would you take it out? You have a little colored card in your worship folder. It's a making a difference card. It's headed with the Life 107.1 and WHO and our church icon there. You see that? Tomorrow is Make a Difference Day across the Des Moines area. And we've kind of joined hands with these people to engage in this. And I just want to ask you tomorrow to practice verse 18. Now, I don't know if you go through a lot of drive throughs I probably go through a lot of drive throughs Hallelujah. Uh, you may not go through a lot of drive throughs But tomorrow, try to find a drive through or two. Maybe for a Starbucks, Triple Mocha, Chocolata, Espresso thing. I don't know. Or maybe for a BK coffee or a McDonald's salad. <clears throat> McDonald's salad. You know, uh, something like that. Find a drive-thru and have a card with you. And then when you go to pay your bill to the person in the drive-thru, you know, drive to the first window, please, that kind of thing, you're there. Uh, then give this card and either a dollar or two or five or whatever and say to the lady or the man at the window, listen, will you use this money to pay for the person's order behind me and then will you give them this card? That's all you got to do. Pay for your order, hand the card with a little, you know, like a five-dollar bill to it and hand it off. It would be a good way to practice just doing good. Sharing. That's all you got to do. The person behind you then, when they go to get their order, they'll be told, oh, by the way, the person in front of you paid for all or part of your order and they wanted you to have this card. You can sign it if you want. They'll give that card. And you know what? You never know how something like that will make a difference. I mean, really, you never know. Uh, it, they may check a website. They may make a phone call. They may hunt you down and pull you over. I mean, you never know what may happen, right? But this is just a small way to practice Doing good. You see, because if we're not careful, our grip gets really tight. It's hard to let go of stuff, isn't it? But if you practice it, it becomes easier. I've discovered that. And the more you practice something, the better you get at it. So I'm just asking you tomorrow, on Make a Difference Day, just take up these cards and practice doing something good. It will definitely show the people in front of you that you know what matters most. That it's not just about this life, it's about the next life. Amen. And that's what your real hope is in. Your hope is in God. It's a simple, small way to show that. Which begs this question. Is your hope in God? Here's a... Uh, I'm going to get a little personal with you. As I was explaining that... Were you finding ways out of it? Now, it's, not, it's not a sin if you don't do this. Let me clear this up. But the heart of the issue is what matters. If you found yourself finding every conceivable reason to hold on to your money, if you found every thinkable excuse for not being nice to someone, let me ask you just a really gut-level question. Or, or, and you may think this is a little invasive, really good for you. Are you sure... That you belong to God who has given us His Son. Are you sure? Are you sure you're putting your hope in God? Because it sounds to me like you might be putting your hope in money. Into $5. Or into your stuff. 
I mean, it seems to me that as we get to know God more, we become more willing to share and more generous. After all, who is the ultimate example of giving? God is, amen? He gave us His Son. And when He gave us His Son, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved, they put their faith in the name of Jesus, then God saves that person and He gives that person His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, now follow me. Now watch, I'm going somewhere with this. That Holy Spirit has the power to help you live like God. It's not a complicated thing, church. Are you with me? God gives you His Spirit. He gives His children His Spirit so that they can live like God on the earth. I didn't say you were a God. I'm not saying you have some light in you. I'm saying God gives you the Holy Spirit to live in the power of of the Spirit. So that when you have moments to share, when you have moments to speak, when there are times to live like Jesus, we don't say, oh, I can't do that. We say, oh, I'd be glad to. Are you with me? And it might be very healthy if you find yourself at every giving opportunity always fighting and arguing and resisting. That sounds more like the first few verses of 1 Timothy 6 than it does the last part of the chapter. I'm being gracious with you and polite, but I'm trying to be honest with you. True doctrine, real believers are known by their willingness to share. Look at Acts. Are you with me? What was the the overriding characteristic of the first church? Man, they shared all their stuff. There were some men and women who sold land, brought the prophets, and they gave them to people who had need. I mean, it was a true Christian community. Not communism. Not redistribution, but voluntary Christianity. I've got some things. I'll help you. It's a sign you belong to God. It's a sign, watch this, that you have put your hope in God. And that really is a more important question than whether or not you'll pay for someone's 350 Starbucks. That's a more important question than did you do a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. That's a more important question than are you going to maybe you know, help the nursing home at Christmas. The bigger question is what are you putting your hope in? And these things may just simply bring to the surface the fact that you're not really hoping in God at all. You see, that's really the bigger question, church. Where is your hope? The only place to put your hope is in Jesus Christ. And you do that by receiving the gospel, taking your stand on it and saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It's the good confession talked about here in this same chapter. Question for you. Don't answer out loud or raise your hand, but just answer personally. Are you confident? You have put your hope in God. Are you, are you just positive that you're not trusting anything else to get you to heaven except for the one and only name of Jesus Christ? That's the only way we're saved. That's the only place to put your trust. And if you're here questioning this morning, thinking, Todd, I don't know. I'm not sure yet. Then I just invite you to do what lots of people in this auditorium have done. Different ages, doesn't matter if you were young or old. But there was a time in their life when they said, Jesus, I believe that only you can save my soul. 
that part of me which lives forever, the eternal life part of me, the forever part, I believe only you, Jesus, can save me. So I trust you. I put my hope in you, God. When that happens, God saves us, makes us His child, gives us His Spirit. And then the rest of this chapter, being uh, generous and sharing, that just kind of is what we do because we belong to God. When you put your hope in God, the rest kind of follows. Are you with me? Let's watch God protect us from greed and keep us in pursuit of godliness. Amen? Let's heed Paul's warning here. Let's be generous, willing to share, and, and, and um, understanding that the true life that is to come is the real life that matters. Let's pray. First Family Church, will you bow your heads with me, please?